Uh, just once again, my name is Prentice, uh, and again, I get to be uh, the pastor here, and it's such a privilege uh, to be the pastor here, and we're continuing on in Romans. And so, if you haven't been here, if you're new, welcome, and I always say thank you for taking a, taking a risk uh, by showing up to church. I know it can be a scary thing, and so thank you for being here and, and being a part of our, of our service this morning. Uh, especially, there's actually a, a few more than I thought with all the women gone on the retreat. Uh, so for those of you that are dads with uh, your, your other uh, at the retreat, you're almost there. Uh, you, you, you've survived. Uh, the women will be coming back this afternoon. Uh, so just hang in there. Uh, but good, good work. I see little kids running around. It's awesome. It's beautiful. Uh, but sometimes without... Uh, the mothers, it gets a little chaotic, and, and actually, I love it. I love seeing that. So, uh, almost there. Uh, but as we continue, I love that we get a chance to talk about Romans. Uh, and it's such a timely book or letter, uh, considering the, the time and where in which we're living this morning. And so the title of this whole series, as we go through the book, it's called The Way Forward. And, and for many of us, we, we come to church really asking that question, what does it look like for us to move forward? Whether it's through pain or hurt, last week we talked about suffering, whether it's division, whether it's anger, whether it's frustration, whether it's uh, barriers between you and a loved one, the question at hand is, what is the way forward to break that down? To be in full, authentic relationship with others and with God. And I really believe that this is so relevant, and Paul is speaking to a context where in which what they're dealing with, probably even on a, on a bigger level, is something we're experiencing today. Again, division, hurt, pain, suffering, all of that. Uh, and again, I don't have time to go through everything we talked about, but I do encourage you uh, to, to go online and listen to some of the series, uh, beginning of the series that, that sets this up. So, uh, with that said, our text comes from uh, Romans chapter 6, uh, verse 8 through 14. And so if you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can read along. Uh, I just want to say I'm a, I'm a little thrown off because sometimes I, I feel like when I'm, when I'm speaking, this is a little bit of a side note, I kind of I know where everyone sits on a weekly basis. So, so when my friends... Uh, Carly and Brian, when I see them in a different seat, it throws me off a little bit. That's okay. Uh, I'm glad that we get to diversify the places where we sit. So with that said, Romans chapter 6, uh, 8 through 14 says this. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. I love that part. In the same way, he says, as Christ died, he says, in that same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument, again, that word instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you 
are not under the law, but under grace. That is our text. Thanks be to God. Let me just pray and we'll continue. God, thank you uh, that you have brought us here. You have brought us together. In the midst of a country that is hurting and mourning, whether collectively or even individually, thank you for the joy and the peace, the shalom that you give to us. God, we pray especially for our Jewish brothers and sisters at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh and really all over the world that we stand with them in solidarity in their loss, in their tragedy. And as humans and as brothers and sisters, when they hurt, we hurt. When they're in mourning, we're in mourning. When they find hope, we find hope. And so, God, may we stand with those that are hurting, that are voiceless, that are marginalized. We thank you that you have transformed our lives so that we, in turn, uh, in gratitude, be generous uh, with, the, with our lives. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so when I was in college, I was interning at a, at a church in Seattle, uh, and it was a smaller Presbyterian church. And for those of you that have been around Presbyterian churches, or really not just Presbyterian churches, but really uh, we would call high church or liturgical churches, uh, there was a moment in the service after the announcement uh, where the person would say, uh, or the pastor or the announcement person would say, okay, now is the time that we pass the peace. And I've always kind of chuckled at the moment of the service when the pastor would say, okay, at this moment, stand and will you pass the peace? And what he's, he at the time was ultimately referring to was essentially what we do, we all do it, uh, is stand and greet the neighbor uh, next to you. Essentially means just say hi to somebody, get to know somebody, encourage them, uh, uh, bring a positive force and presence. Bring who God is to you to them, uh, to the person that you may not even know. Will you pass the peace? And, and as I think about that, I, I remember, again, chuckling over this idea of passing the peace. Uh, but, as, but as I got older uh, and more wise and more mature, right? Some of you guys would agree. Some of you guys would disagree. Uh, I, I would encounter people uh, where they really did pass the peace. I mean, here, let me put it this way. Have you ever met somebody where they just exuded joy? Where you knew that when you were hanging out with them, a single conversation, a single hello, something happens where you're just kind of on cloud nine. Where they're so encouraging that just brings peace. They have literally passed this essence of peace, of shalom from themselves to you. Have you ever met somebody like that? And maybe you're, really, maybe you're sitting right next to them. Somebody who has is, who is just brought joy and encouragement and even a sense of healing to you in the moments of darkness and pain that somebody, even in those seasons, can pass the shalom, the peace to you. But I would also say that in the midst of the ability to pass the shalom, the peace, uh, many of us, we've experienced people that not just exude joy, but the opposite is true. Have you ever met somebody 
where around you they, they exude just utter negativity, where oftentimes it's always complaining, it's always uh, gossiping, it's always uh, negative talk or, or putting you down or criticizing you or whatever it is. Instead of one uh, passing the peace, somebody is, is passing the sense of negativity. And, and oftentimes there's a word for that. It's called the energy vampire. Are there energy vampires in your life? And again, just like you might be sitting with somebody that might pass the peace to you. You might be sitting next to somebody. Well, that does not. And the question of the morning is this. is Who do you choose to be? Who will you choose to be in light of how Christ is, the work that Christ has done for you? That as followers of Jesus, what we believe is that we can have unity with God through the work of Jesus because of his death and his his resurrection. Because of that, because of the life that was sacrificed for us, we have the ability to be connected with God and to live life, not just breathe, because many of us, we just go on life just breathing, but not just breathe, but experience a life to its fullness. Because of that, in light of that, the question is, who do you choose to be? Do you choose to be somebody, and we'll talk about this, who becomes an instrument of wickedness, Or do we offer ourselves to God in light of the transformation that God has given us and become not an instrument of wickedness, but an instrument of righteousness, ultimately of peace, of shalom? And here Paul, in chapter 6, is asking his readers the very same thing that I'm asking us, even for myself today. What we have to understand about this first century in the ancient Near East, uh, when Paul was writing... As a matter of fact, when all the other authors were writing in in, in what we come to know as the Bible today, none of the writers, and this might be a shock to you, but none of the writers were writing this letter or this historical aspect, whether it's in the Old Testament, none of them were thinking, okay, in 2,000 years, it's going to be put into this little book, uh, and and people are going to read it, and and it's going to apply to everything because, you know, like, I'm going to write about everything that happens 2,000 years from now. Ultimately, that just, that just isn't the case. Uh, and I hate to, to say that to you because we do live in a world that we become, myself included, become a bit narcissistic and a bit self-centered that we read the Bible, first century texts, through a 21st century lens. And, and when we do that, we are doing injustice to the scriptures. And so what we have to understand when Paul was writing was that he's dealing with a certain problem inside of a church. And so just like passages from other scriptures, we know what's going inside of a church or inside of a community, whether it's positive or negative. We know what's happening not because Paul or any other author is so explicit about what is happening, but because we can read in between the lines and see what Paul is addressing to the people. And so... Not to be too off topic, but we, we look at the book of Leviticus and, the, and Exodus where God sends people to, to, to speak against these, you know, relationships with, with, you know, it's in the Bible, with animals, with family members. And I'm like, why, God, like, why do, you, why do you have to write about that? That's kind of disgusting. And the reality is, well, I feel like God is saying, tell me about it. I have to write about it because there's something happening right now that needs to be spoken against. 
And so in the same way, when Paul is writing, we have to understand that the church is struggling with something right now that Paul is addressing, not necessarily directly, but through some of the solutions that he offers. And so some of the questions he asks is, should we continue sinning and hurting others in light of what Christ has done for us? And the response is an emphatic, and it's almost a rhetorical question where Paul says, of course not, of course not. Because what you have to understand is there's a lot of bickering and there's a lot of suffering happening in the Roman church. And again, uh, just briefly, you have to understand that in this time, uh, the, the, the Jewish Christians were kicked out of Rome for several years. The Jewish Romans got, came back, uh, and while they were gone, the Gentile Christians, they've kind of lived life. They've lived life without the Jewish Christians because uh, Caesar, the Roman emperor at the time, uh, thought the Jewish Christians were causing too much trouble, talking about Jesus too much, so, so he kicked them all out. And then when they came back, you can imagine the conflict that has been stirred up. And, and so the, what Paul is addressing, though, is, is this, is, is though you may not like one another, though you may have different positions and perspectives in worshiping God, uh, you guys still have one thing in common. And, and the question might be, well, what is that? What is the thing that we have in common? And it's this. Paul says, uh, you, us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, whether you are a Gentile Christian or a Jewish Christian, we're all suffering under the banner of Caesar, of unfair taxation, of slave labor, uh, of persecution, of pain, of torture even, of imprisonment. Even Paul experienced that himself. In the midst of that suffering under the Roman emperor, Paul is saying both of you groups, though different, should be transformed through the work, the death, the life, and the resurrection of Christ. And so the assumption what's happening, what Paul's really getting to the heart of is my, my guess is that the Jewish Christians and the, and the Gentile Christians, they understood that they bring their own experiences in the way that they worship God, even though it's different, they understood that even if they were wrong and missed the point, and maybe the other side is doing it right, they had no desire to change. They had no desire to ask if what they were doing is proper. They didn't have any desire to make adjustments in their life in order to worship God who has given so much to them. So much so they would say this. They would say, you know what? I don't need to change. God's going to forgive me. Even if I have it wrong, and many of them might say, I don't think that I do, but even if the way I worship God, even if the way that I treat others, because you have to understand that these Gentile Christians, and these Jewish Christians, although they were worshiping the same God, they really disliked one another. So much so there would be a barrier and there would be uh, even rivalries, even fights, and just all sorts of messy things. In the midst of that, each group would say, you know what, it doesn't even matter. I, I don't have to be transformed. I don't have to live differently. Because God is going to forgive me anyways. Because God is still for me. Because God is still with me. It, Paul, I believe what you say, that it doesn't matter if I'm a sinner, or for those of you that are it doesn't matter, because that's Paul's message, saying Jesus died for everybody. And Paul 
here is addressing this issue where people have taken advantage of that grace. And so I love these questions all throughout. He says, so, so what? So, yes, Jesus will forgive you. Yes, Jesus will be by your side and alongside you all the rest of your life. Does that mean you should just continue sinning? To continue hating one another? To continue hurting one another? To continue really uh, worshiping God in a way that God doesn't even find joy out of? Like, should, should we continue doing that? And it's a rhetorical question because the response is, of course not. And, and I love these verses because there's this word instrument. And what we have to know about this word is that it's this Greek word, hoplon. And the, in, the word instrument throughout the entire scriptures uh, is this. It's weapons of war. It's a military term. And, and so the, the question that Paul's offering is, what are you going to do with your life? Are you going to become an instrument of injustice, of pain, of war, of wickedness is what Paul is saying in verse 13. Or, this is kind of ironic, he uses the same term and says, or do you want to be an instrument of righteousness? Of righteousness. And see, what Paul is suggesting is that we all possess weapons, right? And I don't mean just actual physical weapons, but with our words, with the way we act, with the way we treat people, we become a little bit of a weapon. Believe it or not, we have the ability to hurt people. You've experienced this yourself by the ways you've hurt others, by the ways that others have hurt you. We possess and we become weapons that can hurt people, that, that can bring death, like a war. Like this, I think it's very intentional that Paul uses a military term where there's a lot of death and destruction. Right? You don't have to be a biblical scholar to understand that war is ugly. And here Paul is saying with who you are, even though you have been transformed by Christ's life, death, and resurrection, even in the midst of that, Will you choose to become an instrument of wickedness? Or in other words, will you continue to be an instrument of wickedness? The way you treat others, the way you view God, the way you behave, the habits, the destruction, the self-destruction that you have, will you continue being that weapon of war or ironically, instead of bringing death and chaos Will you be an instrument of hope, of righteousness? And I think that's a question for all of us to be asking. What kind of person do you decide to be in your life, to your neighbors, to your spouses, to your significant others, to your family, to your friends? Who do you decide to be? And I would say, in order for us to answer that question, whether we want to be an instrument of war, of hate, of anger, of pain, versus an instrument of righteousness and peace and shalom, remember passing the peace, what do you want to pass? Do you want to pass death? Or do you want to pass life? And I really believe, to answer that question, it starts with understanding 
our own transformed life. And if I have to write this differently, I would say an awareness of a transformed life. Because the reality is, especially if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, your li- I may not even know you, but your life has been transformed. And so in order for us to transition from becoming an instrument uh, of wickedness into an instrument of righteousness, like Paul is addressing, even to his people, even to the church for us today, including myself, he says, in order for us to make that shift, we, first, we must first understand and be aware of our transformed life. I love what Paul says. He says this, what shall we say then? Again, here's this rhetorical question. He says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Remember the Jewish Gentiles and the Christian Gentiles? I'm just going to behave the way I am. I'm going to treat them the way that I want to treat them. I'm going to still be in the self-destruction mode, uh, going back to my old ways. Remember last week we talked about going back to our old ways because of the persecution. And Paul says, should we just, is that okay? Should we do that? Because at the end of the day, God is going to forgive you anyways. And Paul says, by no means, no. He says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified. I love that part. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. He says that we've been baptized into Christ's death and raised with him into new life. And what he's essentially saying is when you give your life to Christ, when you become a follower of Jesus, he's saying we we identify with with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And we have a symbol of that, a symbol for the church. We call that baptism. And I would say baptism is, it is one of my favorite privileges and honor that I get to have as a pastor. Anytime someone gets baptized, I, I meet with them. We have a conversation about what baptism means. And, and ultimately, baptism means this. It means, okay, now that you have declared uh, that you have committed your life to Christ, you have surrendered your life in order to live a new life that only Christ can bring you. So what we do as a symbol to the community is this. We get into the water. Uh, and we get dunked. So I, I tell them I'm going to dunk them into water. And, and so the symbol of being dunked into water is that you have been buried with Christ. Just like what Paul's saying here in Romans. is saying, for those of us that have proclaimed Jesus as king, we have died to ourselves. Our old life is gone. And so what we're saying is, when you go into the water, you have been buried with Christ. And, and literally, when I, when I baptize people, I say, I, I say that out loud so they can hear. I say, buried with Christ. And then when they come back out, I tell them, uh, and raised to new life. Raised to new, to new life. 
And that baptism is a symbol of what has happened to us when we proclaim that Jesus is our Lord. That we have died to our old selves. We've been baptized with Christ and we live a new life. And really, this has been the crux of, the, of Romans so far, and it will be for the rest of the time that we study it, that as followers of Christ, we have new life. And, and, and this new life is really is available to anybody and everybody, that Christ died for all of us, so that we may no longer be slaves to sin. In other words, so Christ has died for us, so this new life, we may not be slaves to, to worry, to shame, to suffering, to hurt. And not to say that all those things won't be there in our lives, because the reality is it will. But the point is this, that even in the midst of that, that will not have bondage on us. That will not uh, keep us in a ball and chain. But in fact, God heals us. And brings us joy even in the midst of circumstances where it feels like there should be no joy. That is the new life that Christ has offered to each and every one of us. That these things will no longer have a grip. See, what we have to understand is when we want to shift to become an instrument of wickedness to an instrument of righteousness... When we want to uh, not, no longer pass, pass a metaphorical death to others, rather, rather pass life, we must first be aware of this transformation that has happened even in our own lives. Because the awareness of transformation gives birth to gratitude. And I really want us to understand this because this becomes almost a metric for our own lives of how much uh, we are grateful for. The awareness of our transformation gives birth to gratitude, a grateful life. I would say a transformed life leads to a grateful life. And again, I would say an awareness of a transformed life leads to a grateful life. We've all experienced this. I remember when I was in college, you know, I lived in the dorms, uh, and I lived with roommates and all these things, and, and I really didn't feel... Uh, what, it, what it felt like to be like a real adult, right? We say like once you hit 18 or once you leave high school, then, then you're an adult. But if you choose to go, if you choose to continue in education, uh, oftentimes you'll live in a dorm or you'll live with people. And, and it's like you're an adult but not quite, right? And so that was kind of, kind of me. And then after grad, uh, undergrad, I went to graduate school where, I, again, I lived in, in campus housing and I lived with roommates and and, and all those things. And, and I remember when I first got my first job outside, after seminary. I moved from Pasadena, California, where I went to school, uh, down to uh, Laguna Beach. So, you know, I decided to live the rough life. But somebody had to do it for God. So I took a, a job as a youth pastor to this new city right on the beach, uh, with new people, new culture, new everything. And I remember having to move in to this apartment by myself. And, and though I had gone to college, and though I had gone to grad school, and I've lived kind of on my own, this was like the first time I've, that I ever really lived on my own. And, and what I quickly realized, especially the first month, is that uh, adulting in this manner is very hard, 
right? Some of us have experienced that because for the first time, now I have to pay for electricity. Now I have to pay for water. Now I have to pay for food. And now I have to cook my own food. Now I have to pay for random things like, like a bed and a couch, right? Like, you know you are adulting really hard when you have to buy a couch, like when, or, or when you get excited about buying new furniture, okay? Because when I was in college or even in high school, I had all those things, but I, A, I never had to buy it, and B, I really didn't have any excitement towards it. It was just always there. And I remember like a month or two after uh, I spent all my money and doing all those things, I called my parents and I remember saying, Mom, I just want to say thank you. I really, I said, I just want to say thank you because I didn't realize all the ways that my parents were providing for me. And sometimes I have to kind of go back to that mindset even today. Because when you're in high school and middle school and growing up, you just feel like, uh, you know, the world is your oyster and everything is provided for you. And you don't, you don't know that. It's not like your parents in middle school or high school, like they, they don't bill you, right? They're like, oh, that couch was, you know, a couple hundred dollars. So you owe $50, you know, like, of course, they're not going to do that. And I remember having these selfish attitudes, even when I was in high school and junior high, where I'm like, Mom, you never get me anything. Or Dad, you know, like, I want that new bike. How can you say no? You don't buy me anything. And, and it, this is kind of, you know, tongue-in-cheek, but I saw this graphic where it says, when your kids say you never buy me anything, just point to water. Point to the food in the fridge. Point to a stovetop, whatever it is. And, and I felt, when I read this, I was like, man, that's, that's kind of me. Because I remember thinking back and thinking, man, I was so ungrateful. But it wasn't until this moment where I experienced this transformation where like, oh, man, like this isn't just provided for me. This isn't just, I'm not just entitled to this. I have to pay for this. I have to buy a new couch. I have to pay for electricity, all these things. And finally, there was a transformation in my heart that led to this phone call saying, mom, dad, thank you for the ways that you provided for me. There was a transformation that happened to me that led to gratitude. And in the same way, unless we understand and are aware of our own transformation, it's very difficult to cross the threshold from here to there. It's not until we truly understand our own transformed lives where we cross over to gratitude. To gratitude. And so the question is, do you know that you've been transformed? In other words, have you surrendered your life to Christ, died his death and the resurrection, resurrection, and experienced this new life? And if the answer is yes, what Paul is urging us to do is then live like it. Then live, if you understand that your life has been transformed, then live like your life has been transformed. Let me ask you this. Since the day that you offered your life to Christ, has your life looked different? Has your life looked different? Since the day that you said yes to living a life for Christ, since the day that you understand that you have been transformed in and through Christ, life, death, and resurrection, has your life looked different? And some of us, the reality is no. I can say that for myself. I can say that, uh, you know, with some of the people that are in my community, what kind of fruit, the, the Bible talks about fruit, what kind of fruit have you bared? 
And Paul is saying, for some of you, you have indeed been transformed, yet in the midst of your transformation, in the midst of the work that God has done to you, you're still an instrument of what he would call wickedness. And he's saying, if you've truly been transformed, do no no longer become an instrument of wickedness, be an instrument of righteousness. If you've been transformed, truly, uh, if you've truly been, uh, if you're truly aware of your transformation and what Christ has done, we cross over from being uh, someone who passes death. Again, a metaphorical death, negativity, pain, suffering, criticism, gossip, whatever it is. We move from 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 being a provider and a passer of death into becoming someone who gives life. Someone who gives life in light of what Christ has done for us. Show me a person who gives life, who passes life to others. And I will show you a person who understands that they have been utterly transformed by the presence of God. A transformed life, an awareness of a transformed life leads to a life that is grateful. Transformation breeds gratitude. And I love in Romans 6, it says, the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. In other words, you have been transformed. You are no longer, if you say yes to Christ, you are no longer a person who passes death to one another, who passes sin to one another. You are a conduit. Imagine what a conduit does. And I remember just, you know, during Christmas, I, I drive, one of my favorite things to do during Christmas, which has already happened when I was driving past uh, through Westlake and Pioneer Square, they already have lights up. Thanksgiving hasn't even passed. Some of you, you know, there's like two types of people, they say, you know, the people that celebrate Christmas even before Thanksgiving and, and others that don't. I know people feel very strongly about that, but I remember driving past and, and I see Christmas lights that are already up and how beautiful it is. And, and for me, it just brings up the spirit of Christmas, of Christ, of, of love, of giving, of generosity, of all these things because of these beautiful lights. And what we have to understand is those lights don't just happen because we want it to happen. It's being generated through a conduit, through a huge generator. And so I look at our lives, and my life included, and I say, if we, quote-unquote, have a generator, if we have been empowered through Christ, are we exemplifying beauty? Are we passing peace? Or are we doing the opposite? As Christ died and resurrected, we can identify with that. We walk alongside him in that and says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And the word I want us to focus for a second is, it says, uh, it says, verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to Christ. And, and this is, you know, sometimes... As a joke, I'll be kind of hard on uh, the NIV. So if you read the NIV, more power to you. I think it's great. Uh, as a joke, some Bible nerds, we call it the non-inspired version. Um, all right, if you don't get that, then good for you. I'm glad you don't. But for, for those of us, I always joke about that, but I really feel like the NIV has it right. 
where uh, Paul uses the word count. In other words, in other translations, it'll say consider or reckon or goes am I. Uh, and the definition to, uh, uh, to count, uh, the way that Paul is using it in the first century in ancient Greek is it's to calculate, it's to reconcile. It's an actual accounting term. So for those of you that are number crunchers, you guys might appreciate this, but the idea of count yourselves dead to sin but alive in Christ, Paul's using a, an accounting word, a mathematical word, saying in your life, count Like, literally, take an inventory of the way that Christ has affected your life. Of all the blessings and all the things that God has given you. Literally saying, count. Reconcile. Has what Christ done for you, has that bared fruit in your life? Has he changed your life? Has he provided for you? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. And I love, he says, remember that. Take record of that. That Christ has changed our lives. A transformed life leads to a grateful life, and a grateful life leads to a generous life. Gratitude breeds generosity. And I say this time and time again, to the extent you are grateful, to the extent that you are grateful, again, gratitude happens out of transformation, but to the extent that you are grateful is the extent you are able to be giving, to be generous. In other words, because you understand that you've received new life, you can provide life for others as a conduit of how Christ has generated your life to create beauty and to give beauty. I love what the Lord's Prayer says, on heaven, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. In that prayer, what it's saying is that in our lives, will we exemplify, will we be the conduit of heaven to earth? And and the answer is, we should be. Just like Paul's rhetorical question is, well, should we just continue sinning, becoming an an instrument of wickedness? Continue sinning because we know God's going to forgive us? Paul says, absolutely not. The, The answer is, we become generous with who we are in God's love to others because we have experienced the transformation that Christ has given to us through his death and resurrection. Therefore, through that transformation, we become grateful. And it's through that gratitude that we become generous. And it's not that our faith is a work-based faith. Because, I, again, Romans is, is exactly antithetical to that. It's saying that it's only through the life of Christ that you are able to receive salvation, a new life, not just after you die, but even today. It is only in and through the work of Christ that is able to happen. So it's not that you have to do all these good works, but... But the essence of what Paul is saying is that it's not workspace, but gratitude compels us. Does gratitude compel you? Gratitude compels us to pass the peace. Gratitude compels us to be a conduit uh, of life to others, not death. Otherwise, we are living what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, a cheap grace. A cheap grace. That we just say, you know what, grace, I'll take it. It'll cost me nothing. It's cheap. And oftentimes, which we 
see even in our own habits of shopping and purchasing things, and sometimes, not always, you get what you pay for. And as Bonhoeffer would say, sometimes discipleship is costly. And for him, it was so costly, it cost him his own life. And so I'm not saying that the moment that you become a Christian, that your life changes because you do all these good things for other people, that you pass the peace and blah, 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 you do all those things. What I'm saying is no. All of that is being sourced not by your own works, but you're just a conduit of what God has already done in your life. Are you compelled to live a different story? Are you compelled to forgive like the world doesn't forgive? Are you compelled to give like the way, like not like the world gives? Are you compelled to love radically? Are you compelled to live differently? And Paul is urging all of us, the answer should be yes. If we claim to be a follower of Christ, may we live in his resurrection, in life, not in his death, but in his resurrection. And so as I invite the team back up, I just would love to give us an opportunity to just reflect on our own lives. And I would say this, if if two almost action steps here. If you want to be baptized, will you come talk to me? Will you write that in your connect card? And I will reach out to you because not to say that baptism is what brings salvation, but it's a symbol to the community saying, I have died with Christ and with Christ, I've, I've resurrected to new life. So that way my life can look differently in the way that I treat others, in the way that I worship God, in the way that I uh, make decisions even for myself. It's this understanding that when I am baptized, that I understand the transformation that is taking place in my own heart, in my own life, and out of that transformation, I'm able to be grateful. And out of my gratitude, I can become generous. That's the life that God calls us to live. To move from being an instrument of wickedness, but to be an instrument of hope, of righteousness, of shalom. That happens first by understanding that we have been transformed, that you have been transformed. And out of that transformation, may you Pass the peace, pass life, pass hope, pass encouragement to others. The question I leave you with, since you've said yes to Christ, has your life looked different? It's a tough question. And for those of you that are just checking out faith, I don't do this very often, but for those of you that are checking out faith that may have been hurt by the church, may have been burned, I just want to say I am so sorry. We can be mean sometimes. Will you forgive us? And maybe this is an opportunity for you to say, you know what, I, I, I'm open and I'm willing to reconsider 
what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the second time, maybe for the hundredth time. And if that's you, again, will you write that down? Will you come talk to me? I would love to talk to you about that. Because there's this new life where we move from death to life. From anger to joy. From chaos and suffering to encouragement and hope. That's the, that's the life that God offers each and every one of us. That is new life. And for those of us that have received that new life, don't hoard it. Give it away. Be an instrument of righteousness. Let's continue. God, thank you so much for the transformation that you have placed in our own lives. May we recognize that. And out of that recognition, God, may we be grateful. In fact, it's, it's almost impossible for us not to be grateful if we truly understand the transformation that is made. And so God, help us to have a full awareness of the transformation that has been in our hearts, how you've changed our lives. And out of that, there's no choice but to be grateful. gratefulness, gratitude, we know gives birth to generosity. May we be generous with your love, with your grace, with your compassion. May we be pastors, not of death, but of life. Because of what you have done on the cross, your life, your death, and your resurrection. May we live like it. May we live like it. And if we haven't, forgive us and soften our hearts to a different way. In your name we pray, amen. Let's continue in worship.